I remember the night like it was yesterday. I remember the phone call like it happened yesterday. It was about 3.30 in the morning, and the phone in my bedroom rang, and I picked the phone up. And the voice on the other line simply said, come to the hospital now. Your father's about to die. And so I hung the phone up, and I ran into my sibling's bedroom. I had four siblings. Three of them were home that night. One was an elementary uh, young age girl. My sister Candace, my other brother Michael was in junior high. My older sister Sandy was in high school. I went to their bedrooms and woke them up. I said, we got to go. We got to go. I got my younger siblings dressed. Loaded them into my car, and we drove 30 minutes to the hospital. And I can remember just about in my mind right now, even thinking about it, I can remember almost every part of that car drive to the hospital. And I remember walking into the hospital room. And we walked in, I saw my father laying on the hospital bed. And he was dead. I remember walking over to him and looking at him and leaning over and giving him a kiss on the cheek and a hug and telling him goodbye. I remember watching my siblings walk up and do the same thing. I remember looking at my father and just thinking, man, what in the world has happened? And all these events that had transpired that created and caused that moment to take place. My father was, his body had been withered away. He had cancer for about two years. And his body had been withered away and he lost a lot of weight and he was skinny and his eyes were kind of sunken in and his skin had turned yellow. And I thought, this is not the, this is not the father that I grew up with. You see, my, my dad, my dad was a big man. He was tough. I think everyone kind of feels that way about their dad, right? That your dad's somewhat invincible. But to me, my father truly was. My, my dad was 6'4", 280 pounds. He was a tough, tough guy. I mean, old school, right? I mean, old school. You don't hurt, you know, rub some dirt in it. I remember one time in particular growing up, uh, my father was jump-starting a motorcycle barefoot. And in the process of doing that, he sliced open his foot from his big toe all the way to his heel. And so he comes walk, he comes kind of limping inside and he sits down in the foyer of our, of our home. And I remember him yelling for my mom to come to the front door and I come running and my dad is sitting down right there in the, in the entry of the house and all the muscle from his foot is just kind of hanging out. Isn't that awful? And my father, my father, this is no joke, my father begins to like pick up the, the inner part of his foot and he's stuffing it back in and he's telling my mom, he's like, hey, go get a needle and some thread. We're going to sew this thing up. My mom's like, what are you talking about? I'm not going to sew your foot up. Are you crazy? But that was my dad. That was the kind of, that was the kind of guy that my father was. He was just tough. You see, my, my dad grew up in a very abusive home. My dad's father was an alcoholic. And so when my father's dad got mad or angry, when my dad stepped out of line, my dad's father would get a bullwhip and he would beat him with a bullwhip or he'd pick up a two by four and beat him with a two by four. That was the house that my father grew up in. It was so toxic, so abusive and so 
awful that because of that, at the age of 18, at the age of 18, my father, his home was so broken that my father signed up to go to the Vietnam War. He, he ran from a broken home. He ran into a war to escape a broken home. That's how bad it was. And so my father goes to the Vietnam War. He serves two tours in the Vietnam War over a four-year period. He comes back from the Vietnam War, and here's the deal. He's, mo he's more broken than he was before. See, students, I want all of you to look at me right now, and I want you to hear this. We're going to talk about this tonight. It's true in my father's story. It's true in my story, and it's true in your story. You can't run from brokenness. You can't run from brokenness. Every one of us in this room, we're broken, and you can't run from it. You can't escape it. Every one of us in this room, myself included, your wonderful student pastor, Michael Head, it's hard to believe. He's broken too. Trust me, I know. All of us are. So my father comes back from the war more broken than he was before. One day he decides it'd be a good idea to, to steal a car. And so he goes to the local Dodge dealership in Oklahoma City. And this is 1972. And he steals a 1972 Dodge off the showroom floor at this Dodge dealership in Oklahoma City. He rips out the back seat. He rips out the back seat and he ices the whole back seat down with beer. And he heads for Mexico. He was just gonna go to Mexico because I'm gonna get a car, I'm gonna rip out the back seat, gonna put some beer back there and just take a stroll down to Mexico. And so somewhere in the, in the next two or three hours, uh, the car begins to break down. In Dallas, Texas, uh, the car breaks down. My father does the next logical thing, discovers that it's the clutch in the car, and so he breaks into the local Dodge dealership to steal a clutch off another car to put it in the car that he already stole. He's arrested because he drove the car across state lines. It's a federal offense. My father gets sentenced to eight years in the state penitentiary in Oklahoma at this place called Big Mac, McAllister State Penitentiary. At that time, it was one of the roughest penitentiaries in America. Serves, an eight years, serves a four years of an eight-year sentence. Gets released from prison on an education parole program. Goes to a local university there in South Oklahoma. Meets my mom. Now catch this. My mom and dad are opposite people. My father's been through war. He's traveled the world. He just came out of prison. My mom grew up in small town Oklahoma. Did never say a curse word. Never had a sip of alcohol. Strict, strict parents. Never traveled outside the state of Oklahoma. And she meets my father at this university. And for whatever reason, they fall in love. Isn't that wild, right? They always say opposites attract. It's true. They fall in love. They get married. And then this guy right here shows up in 1979. Now listen to this. Let me tell you my story. Growing up in my home, it was not easy. My earliest memory is two years old. I'm two years old, and I'm standing in front of the refrigerator in our, in our kitchen. And my dad's yelling at me to go and get a beer out of the fridge. And simultaneously, my mom is telling me, and she's screaming, no, don't do it. That was my childhood. My childhood was really like having a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other.
right? My dad was always pushing me to do different things. My mom was always trying to pull me back and keep me on a straight line. And my father growing up, you just never really knew what was going to set him off. I mean, he had, the, he had the worst temper in the world. Remember one Thanksgiving in particular, you know, the family comes over for Thanksgiving. My mom's family had came over. The house is full of people, friends and family. The kitchen table, right, at, at Thanksgiving, the kitchen table is kind of the place. And the kitchen table is full of everything. I mean, casseroles and the turkey and the ham and rolls and you know, all the different side dishes and all the desserts. It's just beautifully laid out right there. And we're excited about having our big family Thanksgiving meal. My father's in the living room watching football. Someone said something to him that upsets him. Someone sets him off. I kid you not. This is not exaggeration. My father walks into the kitchen, puts his hands on one end of the table, and in one, one sweeping motion, sweeps everything off the table into the kitchen floor, breaks every dish, ruins every piece of food, doesn't say a word, turns around, walks back into the living room and sits down in the recliner and just starts watching football again. One Christmas, same kind of situation. We're hanging out in the living room. We're probably watching Home Alone. I don't know, we're hanging out, right? And someone says something that sets my father off. He gets up, walks over to the Christmas tree, picks the Christmas tree up, lights, ornaments, the star on top, everything. He walks the Christmas tree out the front door and throws it into the front yard where snow has covered the ground. Walks back in, sets back down, and goes about his business. I remember as like an eight or nine-year-old boy kind of walking back, walking to that tree out in the snow, bending down and kind of sifting through the snow and trying to pick up all the ornaments that had fallen off the tree, the ones that I had made, you know, the ones that my mom had collected over the years. That's a picture of my childhood. That's a picture of my childhood, trying to sort through all the brokenness just to find a glimmer of hope. When I hit my junior high years, I'll be honest with you, I just wanted to be a part I just wanted to be liked. I wanted people to want me to be with them. I wanted to, I wanted to be popular. I mean, I would do anything that it took to be popular. Anything, anything at all. Remember one time in particular, I showed up. It was like a random kind of free dress day. And for whatever reason, at some point in time, I decided that wearing biker shorts, you know, like biker shorts, like the real, like today, you guys call that like, you know, Under Armour, like sliding shorts, like spandex, right? I decided wearing spandex to school would be a good idea. So not only did I wear the spandex, but I thought it would look really, really good with a tank top. So I wore a tank top with some spandex shorts, but get this, I thought, you know, it's missing something. I probably should tuck the tank top in to the spandex shorts, and like that's a pretty strong look. Oh, wait, it's missing something. I probably should splash in some wrestling shoes. I kid you not. So I go to school the next day, biker shorts, tank top, tucked in with wrestling shoes. The next day on the intercom, the principal gets on the intercom, uh, students, in the future, we're going to ask you to refrain from wearing spandex to school. Not a good look for anybody. No one wants to see that. But I would. I would do anything it took to try to fit in, to try to make friends. But here's the first mistake I made. 
Here's the first mistake I made in my life. Here's the first mistake. Here's where the train really began to go off the tracks for me. I chose to spend time with bad friends. I made some really stupid choices with my friendships. Here's what I want you to know. I want everyone to listen. I want everyone to look right here. Here's what I want you to catch. For me, those bad friends was the first step to making bad choices. Bad choices led to bad behaviors. And listen to this. Behaviors always lead to brokenness. That's what happened in my life. I was a freshman in high school. And one of these friends that I shouldn't have been spending time with calls me and says, hey, we're going to sneak into my brother's fraternity house at the University of Oklahoma. I said, man, sounds great. Let's go. And so that night we showed up at this fraternity house, the University of Oklahoma, and we snuck up the back stairwell, right? I'm a freshman in high school. We sneak up the back stairwell. We go up to his brother's room. We open the closet up. We kind of start looking around, and we find a bottle of Jack Daniels. And we're like, oh, my gosh, this is the greatest thing in the world. My first sip, my first sip, I was hooked. I was hooked. I loved it. My father was an alcoholic. His father was an alcoholic. My first sip, I was hooked. And the alcohol always leads to other things, right? So for me, it turned into weed. It turned into pills. It turned into cocaine. Anything I could get my hands on just to have a good time. Why? Because deep down inside, because deep down inside, I was broken. And I was just looking for something to make the pain go away. I was looking for something to just fix what I thought only fun and only friendships and only all the things the world had to offer could fix. By the time I was 17 years old, I was an alcoholic. I could take a drink of alcohol and I could feel it. I could feel the alcohol hit my bloodstream. And so every day, that's what I did. Every day I got out of class in high school. I walked to the parking lot. Most of the time I had alcohol in the car waiting for me in the high school parking lot. And I would drink from the time school got out to the time that the sun went down and sometimes late into the night, I'd wake up and do it all over again. That scene repeated itself in my life all throughout high school. Here's what happened to me. Here's what happened to me. All those things I was pursuing, all the things that I was kind of uh, beginning to experiment with to try to fix the brokenness in my life, all they did for me was create more confusion, more chaos, more hurt, more pain. And here's the honest truth. Let me tell you this, students, here's the honest truth. They sucked the life out of me. By the time I graduated high school, I had no plans, no hope, no desires to do anything with college. All I wanted to do was make enough money to have a good time. So it's what I did. My first job out of high school was a construction job. I hauled sheetrock. That was going to be my career. I thought, you know, I'll just do whatever it takes to make enough money to have a good time. So on a Sunday morning in June of 1998, I woke up about 1130 uh, in, the, in the afternoon, in the morning from a hangover. I walked into the front door of my home, the front entryway, the same place my father was stuffing that stuff back in his foot. And there's some bags stacked up by the front door. And I thought, you know, what are those bags for? And honestly, in that moment when I saw the bags, here's what I thought. Those bags remind me of all the baggage in my life. 
And at this point in my life, I was almost 19 years old. I graduated high school. I was hauling sheetrock, no passion, no joy, no life. And I was tired. Can I be honest with you? Will you listen to me for a second? I was tired. I was tired of doing all the things that weren't working. I was tired of all the people I had to be fake with. I was tired of trying to be that guy. I was tired of the substance abuse. I was tired of the hurt. I was tired of the pain. I was tired of all the chaos and confusion in my life. And those bags reminded me of all the baggage in my life. And man, I was just tired. I was tired of the brokenness. So long story short, the truth is that those bags belonged to my sister and she was going to church camp. And so they came home from church that day. I said, I want to go to church camp. I showed up for that church camp with my hometown church. You should have seen the heads turn when I walked on the bus to go to camp that day. I thought, oh my gosh, Terry Kurtz is going to church camp. Thursday night, a guy stood up a lot like this and started talking about his story. And he talked about brokenness. He talked about hurt. He talked about pain. And he said this. He said this. He said, brokenness doesn't belong in your life. Brokenness belongs at the cross. Let me say it again. Brokenness doesn't belong in your life. Brokenness belongs at the cross because that's the only place. That's the only place. That's the only place you're going to find a solution to the hurt and the pain in your life. And then he said this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 tells us, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have gone away. New things have come. And that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted for my life. And so I stood up right there in front of 5,000 people. Big, big camp. 5,000 people. And I walked down an aisle just like this and stood down front and said, I want that change in my life. I want that change in my life. After my father had passed away, about two years after my father had passed away, my mom told me a story. She said, I never have told you, but I want to tell you about the last five minutes of your father's life. See, my father had esophageal cancer, and so his chest was completely full of tumors. And really what killed my father was that those tumors had started to bleed in his chest. And because there were so many, all the blood filled up his lungs, and my father essentially drowned on his own blood. She said, the last five minutes of your father's life, he was laying in the hospital bed. She said, I was seated right next to him. And every 15 to 30 seconds, as your father lay there, he would do something. She said, every 15 to 30 seconds for five minutes straight, your father was laying down on his back. And all of a sudden, he'd set up. And his eyes would get real big. And he would do this. <gasps> and then he'd lay back down. And 15 seconds later, <gasps> My mom told me my dad did that for five minutes until she said these words. She said, honey, it's okay. You don't have to fight anymore. You don't have to fight any longer. And in that moment, I kid you not, my father was gone.
And I thought back on that story many, many times. And here's what I know to be true. I know the reason why he was fighting for his life that night. Because about six months before, we were at a stop sign together, just he and I in my car, just the two of us. And my father and I had never really had honest conversations. But about two years before my father died when he got sick, he began to realize all the things he'd been trying to do his whole life, all the ways that he had began to try to fix the brokenness in his life, all of the 48 years of living and trying to find solutions in the world with money and friendships and relationships and drugs. It didn't work. And so at 48 years old, my dad gave his life to Christ. And we're at the stop sign. We're sitting at a four-way intersection in my hometown. My father turns to me. The car is stopped. And he says, Terry, I'm not ready to die. I'm not ready to die. And I said, Dad, what's wrong? He said, man, there's so much. There's so much I wish I could do over. There's so many things I want to make right. There's so much brokenness that I wish I had more time to fix. Students, I want everyone to look right here. I want to tell you something so important. If you don't listen to anything else I say tonight, I want you to listen to this. Many of you in this room, that's exactly where you're at. You're at an intersection in your life. And you got an opportunity. You can go any direction you want to go. You can keep on going down the very road you're on right now. You can keep on doing all the things you're doing right now. But here's the truth. If you were to be honest with yourself, you would say, it's not working. It's not working. It's not working. I've got good news for you. I got, good, I got great news for you. I got the best news like anyone can ever share with you. You don't have to live inside your brokenness. Your brokenness belongs at the foot of the cross. Your brokenness belongs at the foot of the cross because that's the only place, that's the only place, that's the only place you're going to find healing.